0: Well, thank you, my brother. What a joy it's been to be with you this weekend and to meet your congregation and to bring the Word of God uh, to bear upon you all during this uh, missions conference. And so, uh, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. And we're going to read in verse 17. And my my goal this weekend is… My prayer has been simply that you would see Jesus. It's my experience that a church's vision for mission, whether at home, evangelism to our neighbors, or mission to the ends of the earth, our vision for mission rises and falls with our vision of Christ. If a church loses a sense of the felt Christ in its worship and work everything else begins to peter out and die. And so my hope this morning is that as we look at the Word of God, the Lord Jesus will come down and that you will see none but Him only and be ravished in your soul as you see the brightness of His glory. So Leviticus, sorry, Luke um, 5, and we'll read verse 17, but before we do, let's pray. Our Father in heaven... All Scripture is breathed out by God. And we come to you, O Lord, in the name of your Son, through whom you have spoken to us in these last days. He is the one you have appointed heir over all things, through whom you made the worlds, who is the radiance of your glory and the express image of your nature, through whom you uphold the universe. We pray, Lord Jesus, our Father, Holy Spirit, that you'll come and reveal your glory here in this place that we might see none but Jesus and be drawn out of the darkness of this world into his marvelous light. We offer these prayers in Christ's name. Amen. This is God's word. Please take heed how you hear. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, "'Man,' I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but this is the Word of God It endures forever. May he bless his reading this morning to save the lost and restore the backslider and build up his people in their most holy faith. So, what do you need this morning? It's a simple question, a question you have heard a thousand times. You've asked others, what do you need? They've asked you. This morning, I want you to imagine that Christ is here in this room, And there's no imagination about it. He is here, walking amongst the lampstands. And the Lord God of heaven and earth is asking you, What do you need? What do you want me to do for you? Where can I unleash my power in your life? To heal what is sick, to revive what is dead, to fix what's broken. What do you want me to do for you? And you might be saying to me, well, do you want a list? Um, Where do I start? Like, Washington, Lord. Can you raise up anybody, Republican, Democrat, anybody who knows their left hand from their right and understand even the basic laws of economics and politics that when you're in a hole, stop digging? Or you might say, no, well, my, my problem's nearer to home. Maybe your health is failing you. Maybe your memory's not as sharp as it used to be. You worry about dementia. Maybe you have high blood pressure, diabetes, arthritis. Maybe like me, you put on 20 pounds over Christmas and it's hard to lose. And you're thinking, Lord, help me in my health. Or maybe it's your job. Maybe you're struggling to meet your quarters Goals and your Lord help me, I just can we get ahead this year? Rising inflation, there's a lot of, lo- there's a lot of month left at the end of the money. Or maybe, maybe you're, you're concerned are nearer home, maybe it's your children. I've got six kids, and there's always one of them, it's like Sesame Street. One of these kids is doing his own thing, and there's always one that's the black sheep are causing trouble, and you, you're worried, Lord. Help this one, bless this one, protect this one from themselves. Or maybe it's your marriage. Maybe, maybe you're saying, Lord, please help my spouse to be a little easier to live with. I was reading recently about Billy Joel, the great singer, one of my pop heroes growing up. I play piano, and I love, love listening to um, Billy Joel. And he made this comment recently when he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He said, the happiest times of my life were when my relationships were going well. But in my whole life, I haven't met the person I can sustain a relationship with yet. So I'm discontented about that. I'm angry with myself. I've got regrets. He's been married twice. His second marriage was to Christy Brinkley, the model, and they divorced after nine years. And he said to the crowd gathered to induct him into the Hall of Fame, You don't get hugged by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he says. You don't have children with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I want what everybody else wants, to love and be loved and have a family. You just need one, one person out of millions, to know and accept and love you for being, well, just the way you are. I see old folks walking together down the street who look like they've been together 50 years, And there's something very touching about it they have lasted so long. I used to wonder, how come I don't get that? I can dream about it, think about it, write music and lyrics about it. I can sing about it. I can even try and achieve it again and again. But it slips through my fingers. You can have all the money in the world. You can have mansions. You can have properties. You can have yachts. You can have limousines. And you can have motorcycles. But without love, it doesn't mean a thing. Or maybe you're even worse than that. Maybe you have everything that this world says that you need to have. You've got a good marriage, you've got good children, you've got a good job, a good income, your health's good, but there's still something missing. You have all of the things that the world says you should have to be happy, and yet there's still an aching emptiness in your soul. It's the loneliest moment in all the world, when you've everything and still realize you have nothing. Or when you reach the top, as Van Morrison said, you, you realize you ain't got nowhere left to go. Well, this morning in our text, I want to introduce you to Jesus. For some of you, it'll be for the thousandth time. And for some of you be here this morning, it'll be for the first time that you really meet Jesus. He's someone who knows you better than you know yourself. He's known you since before you knew yourself. His eyes search us. And in this text that we looked at this morning, I just read to you, Jesus meets a man. And well, everybody else knew exactly what this man's problem was. His body was broken, he was in bondage to his bed. He needed released. But Jesus, as, as Jesus so often does, Jesus looked straight through the man, right into the depths of his soul, like a flash of lightning, and he saw a deeper bondage, a deeper problem. This man wasn't just in bondage to his bed. He couldn't walk. This man was in bondage to his sins, to his guilt. He, he needed someone to come and release him. And Christ is here this morning, looking into each one of you, every mother's son of you, every father's daughter, looking into your heart, searching you, knowing you. You feel that, don't you? The the powers of the age to come. There's a glorious story at the start of Dr. Martin Jones' ministry in Wales when he was preaching in Beth-Avon, Sandfields. And... God brought kind of a revival to that church. It was a dying church. It was full of people who knew about God but didn't know God. And there's all the difference in the world between knowing about God and knowing God. And this Welsh man got up and began preaching, and the Holy Spirit came through him and brought a revival. And one Sunday evening, there was a witch in the town uh, 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 conducting a seance in her house, a medium... And she was speaking to the dead, and the people were gathered around the table, and they were, the lights were flickering and all those things. And she saw people walking past her front window, because in Wales, those terraced houses where you, all the houses are joined together, and there's no front yard, literally is the, the, the end of your like, living room window, and then there's the street outside, right? And she saw people walking past her window, on the, on, and they were, their eyes were filled with such hope and joy that she thought… I've got to go where they're going and see what they're going to see. So she dismissed the seance and left and went, followed these people. And they went straight up to the forward Methodist movement where Lloyd-Jones was preaching. And she went in and sat down. And this little kind of Welsh man got up and walked across the dais and began to open the Word of God. And she said, there was a presence in that room that was like the presence in my seance but it was a clean presence. And she met Christ that night, and Christ saved her. And my prayer this morning is that maybe some of you here this morning, maybe you've been members here for a long time, maybe you're here for the first time this morning, that Christ will save you and release you from your sins. What do you need this morning? What do you need? And there are two things that I think Christ shows us in this text that you need and I need. And the first is that you need someone to teach you. You need someone to teach you. Look there in verse 17. One of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Notice Christ is a teacher before he's a healer. It's the constant thrust of this passage. If you go back um, to the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. The previous verses in end of Luke 4, Jesus came to a desolate place, people found him, and he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. He was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And then back at Luke 4, verse 18, as he's beginning his ministry in Nazareth, Jesus says, "'The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor.'" Christ has come to speak. He's a teacher before He's a healer, right? It's one of the foundational things about the Bible. You open the Bible and begin reading the uh, the first chapter, and you meet a God who speaks, a God who makes the universe out of words when thoughts could have sufficed. God could have thought the Word into existence. And even in those first verses, you see God the Father, in the beginning, God. In the Hebrew, that's not Irish, Hebrew. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters, waiting to get to work. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for God to speak. He's waiting for the Word of God to shatter the silence before the creation of God. Va'yumar Elohim And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And right there at the very beginning of the Bible, we learn the lesson, never to expect the Spirit of God to work without the Word of God. They work together like water and wet. The Spirit works by and with the Word. And even in that first chapter this morning, when you read Genesis 1, you'll see God blessing the animals. Be fruitful and multiply. But He speaks that blessing about the animals. But when He comes to Adam and Eve... It's the same blessing. But there's all the difference in the world because God speaks that blessing not about Adam and Eve. It says God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. That you, me, Adam and Eve, the human race, we are designed by God to receive words from God and about God and to recognize it when we do. We're made in God's image. When your mother calls you on your cell phone, You don't ask her for ID. You recognize her voice. And you hear the Word of God. Everywhere you look, creation screams at you. From the the wings of a hummingbird to the whales and the dolphins in the sea, these genius animals. It's amazing. I mean, dolphins, they never get caught when you're fishing at the back of your fishing boat. You never catch a dolphin, right? These massive brains. It's bigger than our brains sometimes. I wouldn't mean, human beings, you know, if aliens were kind of like, you know, pulling a hamburger on, on a string within the clouds down Main Street, we'd be going, oh, that looks really good. And we'd be hooked and landed. Before we knew what a worm was, you never catch a dolphin. These animals dancing in the waves, pine fishing boats. Genius. And, and they reveal the glory of God. You hear God's Word. In the thunder and in the, in the breeze on a cool spring day, and, and you hear God's word also in your conscience. That human beings all across this world, we are united by the conviction that you ought to behave a certain way. One man said, "Human beings are the only creatures who blush, or that know they need to blush." We have a conscience, and when we read the word, when we when we read the Bible. The Bible comes to us as auto-pistos, as Calvin said, self-authenticating. It is God's Word. And I believe the Bible for many reasons, but the top reason is because the God I meet in the Bible is the same God I've met everywhere. Even before I knew myself, my first conscious moments, I'm in God's universe as God's image and God's words coming from all around me and inside me, and I hear the Word of God, and it, it grips me as God's Word because it is it's unique, powerful. And Christ comes to teach you this morning. Are you listening? It's one of the things you know about Jesus. He'd always finish his sermons, his parables, and he would say, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a strange phrase. What do you mean, he who has ears to hear? Because not everybody does have ears to hear the word of God. Do you know where that phrase comes from? He that has ears to hear? Do you know where it comes from? Exodus, sorry, Ezekiel 12. Turn there a second with me, just to see this. Ezekiel 12. I left my big Bible at home. I'm trying to find this tiny print. Forgive me. Ezekiel 12. Right. Here we go. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see, but see not who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have eyes, but they can't see. Why? Because they've closed them, you see. They can't hear because they won't hear. Because they won't hear. They can't hear. Can't hear you. No, no, I can't hear anything. I can't hear. Like a a teenager upstairs playing um, PlayStation 5, and Mum calls dinner, and he's like, no, I, I can't hear you. Can't hear you. Playing on high score call of duty no i can't hear you i can't hear you no i can't hear you and but the problem isn't the mum's voice the problem is his heart or her heart do you have a an ear to hear the voice of your creator this morning cuz he's speaking Because the first act of worship, the first act of having the pieces of your life put back together again, the first step toward finding that life, that joy, that happiness, that satisfaction you're longing for, is for you to stop speaking and to listen. That's the problem in America and across the West, that we think the first thing we do in worship is to speak. No, no, the first thing you do in worship is to shut up and listen. Was reading recently in this book and it said, the definition of a bore, he who speaks when you really wish you would be listening. And I thought, that's also the definition of a teenager. <laughs> he who speaks when you really wish they'd be listening. And God is speaking, are you listening? There's a friend of mine back in Northern Ireland, has on his, has, he was a bank manager, and he has on his wall A little plaque, and it says, you might not like what I have to say, but I promise you, when you leave, you'll not be confused. And Jesus is here this morning, and He's speaking to you, and you might not like what He has to say about you. You might not like what He has to say about why your life is in pieces, and what's wrong with your life. It's not a problem outside of you trying to get in. It's not the economy. It's not Washington. It's not your marriage. It's not your children. It's not your bank balance. The problem inside you, as G.K. Chesterton said in that famous essay, when the Times of London asked, what is the problem? What's wrong with the world? And Chesterton wrote in the winning essay, dear sir, the problem with the world, I am. That's the first thing. You need someone to teach you. Are you listening? The second thing is you need someone to free you, to liberate you, to, to be of sin, the double cure. This man comes to Jesus. He actually can't come. He's crippled, he's paralyzed. Perhaps it was a diving accident as a young lad dived into the sea or the, or the, um, the River Jordan when it was shallow and banged his head off the bottom, fractured his spine, paralyzed from the neck down. Maybe he was born that way. Maybe he had cerebral palsy, and is a spastic quadriplegic, and his muscles are all contracted, and he can't move. Interestingly, he's a cripple, but he doesn't, he's not the one believing. His friends brought him to Jesus. And the text says, when Jesus saw their faith, not his faith, it seemed to be his friends brought him. The man is entirely passive in the whole procedure. He's a cripple coming, right, to Jesus. And you remember the thing about these three stories. Jesus has, has just caught a huge catch of fish one night or one afternoon at the, the worst time to fish. He catches this huge fish, catch of fish. And he says to his disciples, Don't be frightened. From now on, you'll be catching men. So he's mixing his metaphors, catching fish with nets, catching men with sermons as he uses the fishing boat as a pulpit, right? And that begs the question, what kind of man has Christ come to teach? And Luke either arranges these stories, or maybe Christ did these these miracles, but the the context is clear. He's showing you in these three men the kind of fish he came to save. Because each of the men—the problem with these men—is not in their body, it's not in their lives. The problem is in their souls, each of them. They're life-size pictures of what sin is and what sin does to people. The leper we saw last night— no, Friday night, was a picture of how sin leaves you dirty, defiled, unclean, unworthy of the presence of God, right? And Jesus touches him. If you touch a leper, you become a leper, and Christ is showing his willingness not just to heal him, but to become him. Dirty, defiled, driven away from God's presence on the cross. Tonight, as God spurs us, we'll see Levi, the tax collector, He's a picture of how sin makes us despicable. The Pharisees can't imagine that Christ would eat and drink with sinners. Praise God that Jesus Christ still eats and drinks with sinners. Sinners. People who are, betray everything that they ought to hold dear. This Levi had betrayed his family, his community, his country, his, his God. To tax the people of God, for the enemies of God, Rome. He's dis- he is what Daffy Duck would say, despicable. Sin makes us dirty, it makes us despicable. And in the middle, you see this cripple is brought to Jesus. He's a picture of how sin disables you, it leaves you helpless in the service of God, unable even to believe in Christ, much less obey him or worship him. So this man is brought to Jesus, and his friends come, and they bring him, and you can imagine that people are jammed in like cinnamon rolls, cooked and baked in a pan, overflowing. People are everywhere. And, excuse me, excuse me, sorry, excuse me, people are really annoyed. Be quiet. Don't listen to Jesus. They're listening. Excuse me, excuse me, sorry, sorry, excuse me, excuse me. They they can't get into the house. There's no way in. But there's steps up the outside of the house, and there's boys, maybe three abreast on these steps, up outside the house, and they have to push past these boys. Excuse me, sorry, 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 sorry. that's your leg, I'm sorry. And they're carrying their friend up the steps, round the house to the top. Then there's the roof. And they start with their nails and fingers, and maybe a a knife and a a piece of rock. They start breaking through the tiles and pulling. And Christ is teaching below, and people are totally oblivious. And then suddenly there's a scratching noise, and they look up. Imagine it was here, and they look up. And dust starts falling down. Everyone looks up, and Christ looks up, stops teaching. And then there's a finger, a bloody finger, comes through the hole, the nail's been torn off, scratching through the roof. Then the hole's a bit bigger, and there's a face, and then two faces, three faces, four faces. And the man runs out, he owns the house, and says, stop, oi, stop that, Jesus, stop him. They're wrecking my roof. My wife will have my life. And then there's a huge hole, and the man's lowered down on a bed. And Jesus says, "Ah, oh, your sins are forgiven you." And the Pharisees are appalled, because they're right and they're wrong, as the Pharisees always are. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, "Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or pick up your bed and walk? Which is easier?" Well, of course the first is. You know in heaven there's a book, and in that book there's names, every name, if everyone's ever lived. And in that book, your name is there. Every thought you've ever thought, every desire you've ever desired, every word you've ever spoken is there and framed in its content and its motive. Even before a word is upon your lips, God knows it all. Like when he said to Sarah, why did you laugh, Sarah? And Sarah said, I didn't laugh. And God said, yeah, you did. Everything you've ever thought, every word you've ever said, every deed you've ever done is in that book. And there's coming a day when that book will be opened and the accounts will be opened and you will be judged. And in that book, in that day, none of us have any hope in ourselves. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're not measured by the standard down here. You're not measured on the curve of humanity. You're measured by, have you lived a life worthy of the glory of God? And none of us have. We've fallen short. And you think, God wouldn't be that fastidious. Would God be that nitpicky? Well, let's say, when you buy a new car, how many scratches are too many on the new car? Ladies, when you get married, how many stains are too many on your wedding dress? See, if something's supposed to be perfect, it's supposed to be perfect. And heaven is a world of love where there's no bitterness or wrath or envy or jealousy or lust or pornography or uncleanness or malice is allowed. And you and I, we haven't just got one scratch or two scratches, our record is ruined. And so, if I were to say to you, your sins are forgiven you, those are just words. But you can't see in heaven, has the book, has the record of my name been erased? So it's easy to say it, but hard to know whether it's happened or not. It's alarming. Um, (laughs) And so Jesus says, which is easier, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home." And immediately, there's life living, wriggling life, surging through the nerves and the muscles of this paralyzed man, and he leaps to his feet, picks up his bed and goes home, and people are amazed. And of course, the Pharisees are still offended, but they're right and they're wrong. If Jesus Christ has the power to forgive sins, and only God can forgive sins, then who is this man that not only the wind and the waves obey him, but even our sins obey him? be gone. They're gone, vanished. And Jesus says, Do you, have you ever realized that you need to be freed not just from the guilt of your sins, but from the power of your sins? Because remember, this man's a life-size picture of what sin is and what sin does to us. What does sin do to us? It makes us its slave. It's willing slave. Jesus, or John Calvin, said... He called sinners "etheloduloi" in Greek, which means willing slaves. The devil says to you, don't read your Bible. And you say, by nature, oh, yes, sir. Watch TV instead. Yes, sir. Don't pray. yes, sir. Don't listen when your dad has family worship. Make it difficult. Roll your eyes, you know. Annoy him, and he'll get into an argument with you, and you'll be able to avoid the sharp edges of the truth yes, sir. Live as if your body, it was your body, your choice. Oh, yes, sir. This sermon's getting a bit close to the mark. Stop listening. Oh, yes, sir. We're the willing slaves of sin. It's a glorious picture of that. I saw recently in a nature magazine. It's the jeweled cockroach wasp. The Ambulex Compressor. It's the amazing wee beastie. It eats cockroaches, which is a good thing, unless you're a cockroach. But the way it does it is amazing. It's got this very special poison. It flies down. It sees a cockroach out right in, the, in the ground. It flies down as quick as lightning and stings the cockroach twice. The first sting paralyzes the cockroach's powerful front legs. The second sting goes in just behind the cockroach's head into the base of its brain. And the amazing thing is that poison doesn't kill the cockroach. It removes from the cockroach the desire to escape. You know, you turn the light on and cockroaches are gone. But this cockroach, once he's been stung by that wasp, he's just quite happy to stand there. And then the wasp takes the the front feeler of the cockroach and leads him and the cockroach follows them just like Mary's little lamb, follows them all the way to the cockroach's lair, down into the lair, and there the the cockroach wasp lays a little egg on the joints of the cockroach's armor. That egg hatches, a little larva comes out, and this is pretty gross, but it's not before lunch, we're okay. That little larva burrows into the cockroach and eats the cockroach from the inside out, and the amazing thing is it seems to know we to begin with the least essential parts of the cockroach, so it preserves the host alive for as long as possible. And that's a picture of sin. What sin does to me, what sin does to you by nature. It's why you find it so hard to resist sin. Temptations to pornography, to bitterness, to anger, to wrath, to malice, to impatience, to Gossip. Why are you fine when you're having coffee and our coffee is only sweet when somebody else is being condemned over it and your heart saying, Don't say that, but you just can't help yourself. It just comes out all of the And so hard to resist sin because it's a it's a master and by nature we are its servant. It affects our mind. It binds our mind in darkness. This is the condemnation, Jesus says, that the light has come into the world, but men love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. Because everybody who practices evil does not come to the light for fear that his deeds would be shown up for what they really are. That, That our minds are messed up, like people in Rice University, professors, like, you have got in your chest a pump made of meat the size of your fist that pumps 600,000 gallons of blood a year, runs day and night, never gets tired, and runs on donuts. And there are professors at your college with double PhDs who believe it came from an explosion. Great faith. Sin affects the mind. But the thing is, the problem with this world is our minds, we love the darkness rather than the light. We don't know because we don't want to know. It's very hard to see things which your tenure and your six-figure salary demands that you don't see. There's evidence everywhere that this world is the product of an intelligent creature. I mean, think about it. If something exists now, something has always existed. The question is, what was that something? Well, could it be nothing? That makes no sense. Out of nothing, nothing comes. So you've got two choices. Either go back as far as you can, and you either have something or someone. If you have something years ago, mud say, how could mud produce everything? How could mud produce Beethoven's Ninth Symphony? the universe. Or maybe someone was there, a most pure spirit, infinite in being and perfections. Ah, someone says, if God made the world, who made God? That's a stupid question. If mud made the world, who made the mud? Something, if something exists now, something has always existed, and by definition, that something has within itself the cause of its own being, which is more rational to you. Now, that being, is that uncaused cause of all things, is mud or God? Maybe I'm just stupid, I don't know. Or maybe sin has made you stupid. Maybe this is the first time you darkened the door of a church, and sin has stupefied your mind. And the question is not, why do you believe that mud or something way back began all things? The question is, why do you want to believe that? Don't you see? The reason is, God, you have no room for that hypothesis, like Jörg Garlin. Do you believe in God? I have no room for that hypothesis. The reason is because God is an idea with too many consequences. If God is God, then you are not. But sin affects our minds. It affects our wills. We're drawn, as Paul says, we're enslaved to lust and pleasure. We can't say no to it. It it, it enslaves us, our mind, our affections, our wills. We love evil more than good. The real problem, of course, is that by nature, you and I, Paul says, are dead in our sins. Remember once I was talking, uh, it was one of the most amazing experiences i ever had. I have led very few people to Jesus Christ. Most of the ones that I have have backslidden. But this guy, atheist, hardened atheist, and I was at Panera Bread with him. And we were talking, and he was the son of one of my deacons at church, and uh, hardened atheist, and we were talking. And he said, I just hate dogmatism. I said, you sound pretty passionate about that. How badly do you hate dogmatism? He says, I am dogmatically opposed to it. (laughs) And I said, that's your problem. I said, it's very difficult. We're all dogmatic about something, aren't we? He said, listen, I'll be honest with you. I've tried to live the Christian life. It doesn't work. I said, can I tell you why? He said, okay. I said, well, I'm going to assume the Bible is true, but the Bible says that human beings have gone through various states. When God first made us, we were living souls in living bodies. And God said, the moment you sin, you'll die. Adam sinned, and he died in his soul. And at that moment, Adam and all his children became dead souls in dying bodies. That our souls— our bodies are catching up with our souls. Our bodies are dying because our soul is dead. Now, I said, that's pretty hard to explain. How can you be a dead soul? You feel alive, don't you? You Kind of. So I said, so if I had a heart attack now and dropped dead, right, would my body cease to exist? No. It just wouldn't have the life that God intended it to have. The eyes wouldn't be seeing. The ears wouldn't be hearing. The hands wouldn't be touching. The mouth wouldn't be speaking. The heart wouldn't be beating. It would be there, existing, but there'd be no life. Well, it's just like that with your soul by nature, I said. You're dead. God shows you his glory, and your first impulse should be to worship if you were a living soul. But you see nothing special because you're blind. And when God speaks, you hear nothing special because you're deaf. And when God commands, you defy Him because you are defiant, and sin has killed you, and you're dead in trespasses and in sins, and you go along with the rest of the world like dead fish swimming, being pushed downstream with the world. And I said, you must be born again. And I kid you not, he went, I want to spend the rest of my life glorifying God. How do I do that? And I was like, Well, that's never happened before. (laughs) It was was the most amazing thing I ever saw in my life. He literally jerked and he went, I want to spend the rest of my life glorifying God. How do I? He was was a Presbyterian. He just heard the gospel the first time. And uh, it was the most amazing thing. And I took him to my car and we prayed. And uh, he wept and he said, God, my parents taught me and I knew it was true and I hardened my heart. Telling words. And hardened my heart. And I asked him later on, what, how did you come to know God? How did that that all happen? And he said, well, the first thing was, my dad was an angry man, bitter and angry, and suddenly God changed him when he came to your church. And that was, I couldn't, my atheism gave me no categories to explain that. And then, when I came on Christmas and Easter to be a good son, when I was worshipping at that Presbyterian church, He said, there was a supernatural power at work, and I couldn't deny it, that my atheism gave me no categories to explain. And that's happening here now, that you and I by nature are slaves to sin. And that doesn't mean we just can't obey God. It doesn't mean that we just can't say no to sin. The the bigger problem is you can't even come to Jesus. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And you think, wow, how do I get saved then? You come to Jesus. But you tell me I can't come. Yes, and the reason you can't come is because you won't come. And it's because you won't come that you can't come, right? How do I get saved then? Well, the wonderful thing is, You'd be in a hopeless situation if I was the only one speaking. But I'm not. The Lord Christ is here this morning. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn above all creation, the one by whom all things had their existence, the beginning of everything that ever had a beginning, Jesus Christ is here. When he was in ministry at the very beginning of his ministry in Mark 1, there was a man at synagogue, and all we're told about this man is what he could not do. He was a man with a withered arm, and he could not stretch out his arm. And what did Jesus tell him to do? Stretch out your arm. What did the man do? Why? Because there's power in the word of Christ. I'm telling you this morning, you can't come to Jesus. You can't break your addiction to pornography. You can't break your addiction to alcohol or whatever else is your favorite waste of time that's consuming you and drawing you, making you look down to this earth to satisfy your soul when really you should look up to God. You can't look up to God because you don't want to. But Jesus is saying to you, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Young man, young woman, come to me. No one can come. Unless my Father drags him. And maybe you're feeling the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart. And I tell you, yield yourself to that. Jesus is offering himself to all of you here this morning. Don't worry about, am I elect? I used to worry about that. If I'm not elect, I can't come. So, uh, Jesus doesn't offer himself to the elect. He offers himself to sinners. You're a sinner. Come to me. If you come, any who come, all who come. I will by no means cast you out. Unless you exclude yourself by not coming, Jesus says, if you come, even if you were reprobate, if you came, I'd forgive you. All who come, I love that word all, I will by no means cast out. Whether for the first time or the thousandth time. Maybe you find yourself in bondage to sin. You profess Christ, but you're enslaved to sin. Jesus says to you, come to me. And I will be of sin, the double cure. You're not in this by yourself. I will give you the Holy Spirit to break the power of canceled sin. I'll forgive you. I'll cleanse you. I'll make you a child of the living God. And you will have redemption through my blood, the forgiveness of sins. There's one here who's big enough and good enough to say to you, your sins though they are many, are forgiven. I have taken them as my sins upon the cross, and I've been consumed and crushed by my heavenly Father. God treated me, the son of his love, as his enemy, that he might treat you, his enemies, as sons and daughters of his love. Now you are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what you shall be, when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is and everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure come to me Jesus says and let me be not just a sinner's friend but your friend and your savior and feel the power of my saving love Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you this morning, O God, for your mercies. Grant, O Lord, that your word will live in all of our hearts and you will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You would save us. In Jesus' name, amen.